Hey friends, welcome to the Love Intently podcast, where each week I bring you relationship experts, inspiring couples, and first-class relationship thought leaders from around the world. I'm on a mission to explore what exactly makes love last and to empower a generation to have strong relationships. I'm your host, Sophie Kwok, the chief love enthusiast who believes that relationships are the most important part of our lives. And if you're looking to build a stronger relationship or to take a proactive approach towards love, loveintently.com hosts an array of articles, podcasts, resources, and love tips to help you build and keep strong relationships. I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hey friends, welcome back to the Love Intently podcast. This month, we are partnering with Live a Great Story for our Love a Great Story campaign. As we all know, the best stories are love stories, and do we have some great ones in store for you? You can find us both on Instagram at either at liveagreatstory or at love.intently, or even get on our email list so you don't miss a beat. You won't want to. We also made exclusive February Valentine's Day love tips, empowering you to simply love intently. And we even partnered with our dear friend, Krista Beck, relationship expert and dating coach for love tips exclusively for singles. And you can find out all the information at loveintently.com or liveagreatstory.com. This week's episode is one I completely fangirled over. Dr. Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt are internationally respected couples therapists, educators, speakers, and New York Times best-selling authors. Together, they have written over 10 books with more than 4 million copies sold, including the timeless classic, Getting the Love You Want, A Guide for Couples, which I highly recommend they are re-releasing this month. And it's just an incredible read that has transformed thousands, if not millions of people's lives at this point and has made a major impact on my own around the Imago Method. I cannot stress that enough. But beyond that, Harville has appeared on Oprah Winfrey's television program 17 times, has been featured by Marie Forleo and tons of others in the industry. However, they did not always have a perfect, smooth ride in their marriage. Even for them as marriage experts, they went through immense struggle and were at the brink of divorce. And we go deeper into their story of how they met and that struggle and how they got through it and how it ended up birthing one of the most impactful frameworks in our industry today. They are also the incredible founders of Safe Conversations and Relationships First, which serves to transform communities to have safer and healthier conversations. And I cannot think of a better cause today given our political climate. I could go on and on about them and how incredible their work is, but I'd rather just have you go jump in to the interview. So without further ado, here is our conversation. I think the first thing is that we both went to a, the same party that neither one of us wanted to go to. So we accidentally met. I was there with a male friend of mine who wanted to be at the party, but I told him I was going to leave in an hour. And 
So I was on my way, basically, we have a little bit different memory. I was on my way out the door, and uh, which was into a hallway, and you were coming down the hallway and walked into the door, and you recognized me because you had been uh, in a class uh, some year earlier, but in the back, I, uh, you never talked to me in the class. I never saw you, didn't know who you were, but you knew me. So you said, hello, Dr. Hendricks. Um, and that you were Helen Kreiling using your first married name. And I had this. Um, Let just, me just say, I was determined that he wouldn't leave the party without us talking. Ah. So I blocked the door. She blocked. I said, you can't leave. <laughs> Not those words. But no. I heard he was in the but, room. Yeah. I dashed in there. Oh, I thought it was more accidental than that. When I was leaving no. and you were coming from the bathroom or something back no. back into the room. Oh no, I was when I heard you were in the other room, I went, Oh, I fell in love. But right. I didn't really want to meet anybody. I was I was leaving. I I dated after my divorce for about two years and I had lost interest in dating, lost interest in marriage, lost interest in women, lost <laughs> I was just gonna be a sort of a priest or something. And uh, and so we met, and uh, Helen recognized me. We started talking, and he exchanged some things about my theological mentor, with whom I uh, worked in graduate school. And uh, she knew him, read him, had a book about him that she invited me to read, and and I think that's sort of what got us to the next day when we started talking about that stuff. What do you remember? Um, so my uh, memory is that I fell in love with his resume. Uh, my first husband was a business person. I really care about people. And my first husband got so wrapped up in business and did something illegal and had to leave the country. So then I thought, well, now my next husband, I can have someone who's really compatible with my beliefs. Mm. And Harville taught psychology and religion, and that's exactly what I wanted. Mm. So I did everything I could to get him to date me. And he had two kids and my kids and I had two kids and they fell in love and we fell in love with his, I fell in love with his kids. He fell in love with my kids and everything was perfect, except we fought every time we got together and we yeah. kept trying to get together and we kept fighting. <laughs> and like, who's going to marry someone that's you're fighting all the time. So we were stuck. I was stuck with the perfect resume, but we didn't get along. That's wow. how I would say. So it really drew out for five years of dating. Wow. Yeah. And finally, she told me not to ever propose because she was going to propose to her next husband. So about five years after that, she did. And I think we had a fight on the night of the proposal yeah, and, and a fight the night before the wedding. And we fought, fought for the, the first moon. 15 years of our marriage. On the honeymoon. And the honeymoon was Anyway, that's it. So what's your second question? But we <laughs> have, <laughs> we, so so we're, we have, the, I have the relationship of my dreams. I'm the happiest woman on the planet because I'm married to him. So the message is sometimes it takes a while. Yeah. And don't give up, so, especially and, and, if you've made a commitment. Just hang in there because any bad, any bad relationship can be fixed. But sometimes it takes a long while. And we, I would think we carved our relationship out of granite, not out of the sand. It was really a hard thing to do. But about 20 years ago, we made a breakthrough. And so we've been on this uh, rather exciting journey ever since of enjoying our marriage. 
Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that breakthrough and what brought about it. Okay. Well, we uh, almost got a divorce in 1997 or eight, somewhere along there. And we went to therapy and uh, none of the therapy worked. And uh, it's a long story to get through, but the short version of it is that we gave ourselves, I think it was nine months, and we would either make it or we were going to quit. <clears throat> and if we made it, we would celebrate a new marriage. If in nine months we weren't happy, we would then divorce. So we began a practice called zero negativity that we would basically regulate our and consciously regulate our negative descriptions of each other and would uh, not only not do that, but that we would focus on what was positive about each other. And we put that in a form of daily appreciations. And by the end of that nine month period, we had um, resolved enough of our issues that we were back safe with each other again and in love. And we had a big celebration on New Year's Eve 2000. It's called our remarriage. And we consider that our real marriage is the one that uh, that we did in 2000 rather than the one we did in 1982. Although we celebrate both, but the one that we remember the best and with most enjoyment is that one. And so that was a, that was the breakthrough, was to surrender negativity for affirmations and be sure to keep each other in a safe place. Mm. Where in your journey did you guys come up with zero negativity and how did you come about that epiphany you want to tell that well if you really want to know okay <laughs> we had we had, there's never been an interview like this but anyway, anyway we had announced to our family we were getting a divorce and then we announced to our therapeutic community we were divorcing but then it was harville who said you know let's try one more time and let's do like a date once a week so we ended up going to a bookstore and we we read we read a book sort of about if you're married on this date and that date, what's the issue in your marriage? And we looked at his birth date, my birth date in this weird part of the bookstore, which we'd never been in before on astrology. And it said, <laughs> you're about to decimate your relationship because of all the negative scrutiny you give each other. And we looked around and thought, who, who, who knows? <laughs> How did they know yeah. that with his birthday and my birthday, that's the message that we needed to hear? Now, I didn't think I was being negative. I was trying to be helpful, and I was trying to improve Harville. But for some reason, he felt like that was negative. Yeah, but, so, the, uh, but the other thing is we, we thought that was sort of the message that this book would give every every couple with uh, with their signs. And we're not into astrology. This was just a kind of a fun thing. Playful. It was a big book called The Astrology of Relationships, about, about a thousand pages. So we flipped through other pairings and found nobody uh, had our description. So we assumed there was something, uh, some sort of message coming to us through the book because we knew we were negative. And that's where we said, well, why don't we do something about that? So Helen suggested that we uh, do a zero negativity process. And she also proposed that we not only say, well, let's not be negative, but let's keep tabs on it. So she proposed that we go get a calendar from the drugstore 
and every day put on the calendar a mark. And if it was a good day, uh, we'd put a check mark. If it was a bad day, we'd put an X. And the bad day meant we were both negative that day. And I think the first uh, month that we kept that calendar, there were all X's, but no days with a check mark on it. And it took about nine months for us to have a calendar with real balance of checks and X's and and primarily toward the check marks. But we discovered in keeping tabs on how how our brains were so programmed just to respond with negativity rather than what we would now say rather than curiosity. And I think that feedback loop of doing the calendar was one of the best things, in fact, is the best thing we ever did to put us on a course of behaviors done on a daily basis that actually changed our energy toward each other and finally made it safe enough to say, hey, I think we can live together. Why don't we remarry uh, or have a, a, a new a new wedding? But uh, that calendar, and Helen came up with that. She has a great way of coming up with list. And this was a, a, a kind of a checkup. At the end of the day, if one of us had an X, meaning the other had done something that felt negative, we would have a redo. Yeah. Right there. Like, can we take that moment and what would have to be different for it to have felt okay? Yeah. We then learned a lot about it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And could you just use a different tone of voice or a different look in the eye? Mm-hmm. And it was really micro, micro, micro changes we began to make. And so now we give this calendar out to a lot of other people who just go, wow. You know, it really, every night you check on what you could have done better and we have a redo or an apology if you need or a safe conversation. And then then you just share each other three appreciations that day. Yeah. The brain says what you focus on is what you get. So the point is to move to anything you don't like about your partner or that you want to improve Mm -hmm. in them. Just focus on what they're doing right. And more and more, they become the guy of your dreams or the woman of your dreams. Yeah, and that's the trend. That's the radical thing itself. Focus on what your partner's doing right, because intuitively we focus on what our partner is doing wrong, and then we think we don't actually think it, but our brains seem to assume it. That if I tell you what you're doing wrong, then you'll do it right. But what we found is, if I tell you what you're doing wrong, you'll do more of that. And then I'll react more strongly and have something that you can criticize. So we just reverse the feedback loop from paying attention to what was frustrating to paying attention to what was um, could be affirmed and appreciated or what the partner was doing right. And that really changed our neurochemistry. And I think we would, we would say that over time, we also experienced a kind of increased brain integration so that we are not reactive now. When we do get triggered, we go mainly to curiosity about what is going on rather than what the hell did you do? And that makes a lot of difference from a dropping judgment and going to curiosity. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I know that zero negativity and the Amalga method that came from the hardships that you guys had early in your marriage has transformed thousands, if not millions of people at this point. So for the audience that doesn't know about the Imago method, can you explain a little bit about that and share what that really is? 
Well, imago is a, a Latin word that is a translation of the English word image. And so what that refers to is a constellation of memories that are created in childhood in our interaction with our caretakers. So it's like we have a movie recorder going on in our brains, and we record all our interactions with our caretakers, including the good and especially including the bad, because the negative interactions with the caretakers triggers the brain's anxiety. Because if I'm having a trouble with getting my needs met with my caretaker, or my caretaker is being unavailable or difficult for me, then the organism early in life experiences that as a threat to being, threat to life. So I photograph that because that's dangerous and I have to photograph it so I can recognize it when it shows up. Unfortunately, the caretakers tend to never change enough in childhood that those movies are replaced with other movies. They get reinforced all through life in different ways so that when I'm an adult, and I'm on my search and find mission for my adult intimate partner, my brain looks for somebody similar to the caretakers with whom I did not get my needs met so that I will now be with somebody like them from whom I will get my needs met finally. And so we couldn't figure out why in the world the brain would do that for a long time. And finally, it became clear that the brain wants what it needs from the person from whom it's supposed to come. So we have to then marry somebody similar to the caretakers from whom it didn't come so that we can finally get it from the person from whom it's supposed to come, namely a replica of our caretakers. Now, all this is going on unconsciously. We had to figure this out over a decade of research about how the brain actually works. So we talk about the imago match. So I have a picture of the partner I need, and that includes three or four things that are negative. And when I meet that partner, I'll fall in love with them. And my unconscious mind will say, okay, I'm with mom and daddy, or whoever my caretakers were, could be an uncle, aunt, or an older brother, just whoever the need system was frustrated by in childhood. I fall in love, but I overlay onto them the expectation that they're going to be the caretakers that they should have been when I was little and meet the needs that should have been met when I was little. But of course, they won't because they're like the caretakers who didn't. So the same dynamics in childhood will show up again in your marriage. Now, many people say, well, that's a very negative view of marriage. And we have to say, well, it's actually the way your brain works. So that doesn't make any sense to me either. I've often said, I think if I had an opportunity to talk to the creator, I would say, why don't you let us fall in love with somebody who will meet our needs instead of somebody uh, similar to the people who didn't meet our needs. But what we discovered after also struggling with that, probably there was a five-year period in which, which I knew I went through a kind of professional depression, which is that if everybody's going to fall in love with a person with whom their needs can't be met, then marriage really sucks and couples therapy is not possible. But one day it dawned on us that there's a reason for that, which is Helen will fall in love with me and she will want something from me 
that's not uh, natural for me to give. It's like no way in hell uh, can I do that. And what it was, was, uh, was emotions. I grew up pretty cognitive and not very emotional. And Helen did not get a lot of emotional nurturing in her family. So she's looking for somebody who doesn't do emotional nurturing from whom she can get emotional nurturing. So her unconscious pairs are with me. So she asked me for that. It's like no way in hell. But finally it dawned on us, well, I shut down my emotions when I was little. And I had to do that to survive as a child and in, in, in my family. So what Helen's asking for is that I bring back online what I shut down when I was little. So if I don't say no way in hell, but I'll stretch into that, and I begin to work on getting my emotions up and out and express, Helen is actually calling me to bring back online what I shut down in childhood so that I become a more complete person because I respond to her needs than I could ever be. And somebody who didn't grow up in her kind of family would never ask me for that. So I would never have to stretch into it. Also, I would never have fallen in love with her and she wouldn't have fallen in love with me because you fall in love because of, the, of what's missing, not what's there. So we found that that was the point of greatest growth was to identify what your partner needs from you that, that you don't think you can give and then give it because it brings to life the hidden and undeveloped part of the self. So when I grow, as I care for her, she grows as she cares for me. So this is the way we discovered that marriage is a powerful growth experience. If you're willing to hold the tension and stay there until your brain changes and you can begin to do the undoable. And then it's easy to do. Now I cry in movies and have all kinds of emotions and I'm kind of funny and um, so forth and, and, um, <laughs> and, and enjoy my emotions and, and, and feel and am a very feeling person, right. I think, right now. And also, I discovered it's helped my creative processes because before that happened, my intellectual work was primarily very cognitive and logical. And now I'm aware that I'm also intuitive and creative. That's like the right brain is connecting to the left brain and my corpus callosum is not so rigid anymore. So that intuitive stuff and visual stuff flows back and forth with language and I can do I can create pictures I can also write sentences and all of that a result of the growth that happens we say that your partner calls you into being mm. and becoming the part of you that you you had when you were little you lost it when you were little and your partner helps you get it back mm. and at the same time my giving it meets her childhood need her giving it to me what I need from her meets her childhood need. And what I needed was attention. I didn't have much attention when I was little. There were nine children. Uh, so, you know, and I'm the last. So you can imagine how few times I got my mother to look at me. And so I marry somebody, and Helen is a multitasker, yeah, does what, all what, kinds of what things. What Harville says he needed was a, a reliable war. Reliable, reliable. war. Well, yeah. I'm busy. Yeah, right. Like, and also, I'm great at multitasking. Like, yeah. I'm amazing, yeah. at, but I can juggle. He is very unhappy when yes. I do that. So I've had to learn how to focus. 
focus. And be there Put down your phone. In just the right way. When I come into and, the room, say hello and, and stuff like that, which I didn't get as a child. And that makes you focus on, and that. That's a great a gift to me. And the gift that to you. I, have to do that, that, to to do do that. because I don't do that for anybody else. And what, it's, it's fun. Oh, that's the sentence. What your partner needs from you is a gift. Yeah. What your partner needs from you is a yeah, gift to I you. Know. And also not say what I think to improve it. <laughs> but, uh, other people can do that. I can just be quiet. I don't have to yeah. say anything. Just accept me and love me and don't try to reshape me. Yeah, so. it's really fun when you realize that what your partner needs is a gift long term. Hmm. That's so powerful. Um, it reminds me of a quote that you guys said in your book, getting the love that you want, that love heals all and that it's a well-known sentiment and that it can, and it can even heal the deepest emotional wound of all the ruptured connection between you and your parents, but it needs to be a specific kind of love and it needs to be mature, patient love, free manipulation, distortion, mm-hmm. and it needs to take place within the context of an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. And so my question to you is for the people out there that are maybe still single and looking for that partner, what's a way to select a partner that's healthier and better fitted for you? Well, I think that one of the things that we would say from our perspective and theory and, and experience is that your unconscious mind is going to pick your partner and you don't have anything to do with it. So you can't say, I'm going to go pick a healthy partner. I mean, you could go logically and pick somebody who had a lot of compatible traits and a good person, but you wouldn't fall in love with them. So your unconscious mind is always going to pick somebody, and this is the hard thing to say, whose needs are just as deep as yours, whose defenses are just as rigid as yours, and their wound in childhood was just as bad as yours. And that's just the way nature hooks you up. And so what you have to do is two wounded people meet each other, and now we know what they can do. And we can help them, uh, like there are three or four things you can do to the two wounded people co-heal each other. But you can't just say, I'm going to pick a healthy partner because you'll pick a partner just as healthy as you are. So if you get healthier, you'll pick healthier partners. But until you become a healthy person, you will pick a partner whose emotional needs are at the same level yours. I wish that were different because I know the dating sites all sell compatibility and they're selling an illusion. And it's interesting that the way that happens is that they know you're going to date 5, 10, 15, 20. I have a friend who got divorced and, and he went to a dating site. He dated a hundred different people and uh, over a, what about a two year period. Um, so he was dating almost a different person every other week. And finally, out of all those he met somebody he fell in love with. The other 99 were not that. So what happened is his unconscious mind finally dated somebody from the website whose needs and in, inside world were his imago match and he theirs. And they fell in love, got married, and had a very difficult marriage for the first three or four years. I think they were married for 12 years before he died. So that's just the way the unconscious works, which is why we do our work. We really think that the culture needs to have the information about how the selection process works so that the culture can have the information about what to do to make it work. 
into a great marriage because the deeper the need in childhood, the greater the need for healing. And we think the greater marriage you get out of that because Mm -hmm. somehow you really become partners in the project of having Mm -hmm. a great marriage. Mm -hmm. If you have a difficult one, you have to become partners to do that. It's, It's not about me anymore. It's not about you. It's about the relationship. So we have to learn how to build that relationship and then the relationship takes care of us. Mm. Yeah, the one other thing, in addition to childhood issues, is the practice of dialogue. That that's an, an essential part of having a healthy relationship. Yeah, I was curious if you guys would demonstrate a dialogue flow with us today, actually. Sure. We could talk about the event we're going to today. I would like to talk about your goal for safe conversation. So we're going to... So you want to ask for an appointment, so we have to establish mm-hmm. boundaries. We're going to do an exchange about safe conversation and what it means to us or the yeah. world. Okay. So, so the first thing is make an appointment. Uh-huh. You always ask. Mm-hmm. So Harville, uh, can I make an appointment to tell you something I like about safe conversations? Absolutely. I'm available now. Well, I think that we're drawn to be in relationship. So you think we're drawn to be in relationship. But every relationship is hard. Mm. So if I'm getting this, we're drawn to be in relationship, but every relationship is hard. And only recently has the relationship science gotten good enough that there's really help that any couple can learn to shift from conflict to connection. Only recently have the relational sciences uh, been able to provide enough help so that people could learn how to be in connection. Am I getting this? Yes. And one more is, thing. Is there more? Yes. One more thing. And so I love every day waking up mm-hmm. knowing if we <clears throat> can share safe conversations with anybody that it might help heal their relationship, which everyone is longing to have a great relationship. So you love waking up every morning thinking that everybody can have a great relationship and looking forward to helping them have that. Am, am I getting that? Yes. Okay. Is, there, that. is there more about that? So uh, if I could summarize it, the thing that you like about Safe Conversations uh, is that it, uh, I think I've lost the person. Well, just the essence can, can you summarize what, every, what every, everyone is longing? So, so in essence, everybody's longing for a great relationship, and we have we have help and, for them. And that it hasn't help hasn't been available uh, until now, and we have help for them now. And you wake up every morning thinking about uh, the sort of honor of being able to make that help available. Mm-hmm. Is that a good summary? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that makes sense. That. That you would, um, you given that the most people on the planet actually don't have access to good information about how to make a relationship work, and we do, it makes sense that you, it makes you really happy to wake up every morning knowing that you have something to offer. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that when you think about doing that, you feel you feel really a lot of joy. Yeah, you know, a lot of happiness. Is that the feeling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. is that any more feeling? So yeah. about that. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yes, thank you for listening. You're welcome. It's now a good time for me to share uh, my thoughts and feelings about about safe conversation. Are you available for that? Yeah, this is a good time. This is a good time. Well, 
you you ask about how did how did I decide to bring or either you or Sophie ask about how did I decide to bring the wisdom that we and the power that we know works in the office and the clinic to the public, which is what Safe Conversation is. It's bringing to the public uh, the the uh, resources that couples can only get in therapy and making this available in less expensive uh, packages and in the smaller bites, but nevertheless. So I think that, that that's a good question. And my, my memory is that I woke up now probably 10 years ago or more, but not much more, with an awareness that we had a kind of vision in Imago of uh, transforming the world one couple at a time. But we thought about that as one couple in therapy at a time. And that it dawned on me that that will never change the world, that therapy is not, uh, is not a social movement. It, it, it won't change the world, that we have to do something different. So the question was, how can we get this thing that works so well between two people in the office distributed to um, a mass of people, hundreds, thousands, millions of people? which is fundamentally the dialogue process. So, so let, that's me hear, how let me hear back what I heard so far. Okay, sure. That is your thinking about safe conversations. It was really one day about 10 years ago, you were thinking about all that was going on in the therapy offices mm-hmm. and how could we help get this out of the therapy offices and into everyday life yeah. because uh People don't know the new science, and and they need it. Everyone's yeah. looking for this. Yeah. Am I getting that? Yeah, every, if, everybody more. needs it. I'm not sure they're looking for it, but everybody everybody needs it. needs it, whether they know they need it or not. Yeah, and it would be important, but they don't know it's available, and they don't know it's available. So what was it goes with that decision to move it from the clinic to the culture? Is uh, how do you dilute? How do you do that? Yeah. What sort of mechanism do you have? So the next question is then, oh, it's a great idea. How do you do it? How do you do Did it? Did I get that? Yep. Okay. So that's how it all got started. And Relationships First and Safe Conversation is the outcome of that vision. And so that's mm-hmm. really the origin. Mm-hmm. And this is the outcome. Safe Conversations is the outcome of the vision. Right. Right. Shall I summarize? Is there more? Uh, no, no more. I think that's enough for now. So basically, you realized one day there's all this new information in therapy offices, yeah. and couples really need it. And maybe we can get a movement of getting it out of the clinic and in, into the public. Yeah. And we call it safe conversations. Right. And people like Christine could take it and share it with others. Yeah. Get the mm-hmm. word out. Yeah. Do I get that? You got it. That makes a lot of sense. That makes sense. That that would be very special to you. Yeah. And I would imagine that that you feel gratified that this is going on or, or good or... Well, I feel... Um, worried or... Well, well, I feel both joy in doing it, but I'm also a little worried about the size of the task and how much can actually get done in my lifetime. So I think I'm excited and, and a little worried. So the feeling you have is like excitement, but also concern. 
about how it's a it's a big task. It's a big task. And how yeah. much can you get done? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or we get done. Yeah. Done. That makes sense. But thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you for listening. Right. Thank you so much for doing that and demonstrating. Um, that kind of leads me into my next question is the incredible work that you're doing through safe conversations and relationships first. And given the polarity that's happening in our society today, can you talk a little bit about how you're applying relationships first and safe conversations into the city of Dallas and the vision to expand beyond that? Oh, you asked on the perfect day. <laughs> oh, uh, one person that loves our work is Mayor Mike Rollins. So he has had us come and work in City Hall with the 311 staff when they have emergency mm-hmm. phone calls. And, and we've also begun the training program. And pe- when people come for training that are first responders, then they take it to the first responders community. Or if they're veterans, they take them to veterans couples. Or if they're in schools or, or houses of worship, these other people who come for training are taking it to their house of worship or their schools. But what happened, there's something called the National League of Cities. And we met a woman who works at this organization. And it's a, the association of mayors in every city in the country and the city leaders. And if something is going on in one city that the mayor would like to tell the other cities about, that's what this organization does. It puts the mayors in conversation. They have annual meetings. They have regular communication blogs and things. And the mayors can tell the other mayors what's going on in their cities. Guess what's happening on Friday? The mayor of Dallas is about to send a blog to the National League of Cities, and they're going to put it on their blog. And how many people read it? 40,000. So we'll send you a copy of what the mayor is writing, and it's going to go out on Friday. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So you're like to know. Wow. Congratulations. We'll be telling everyone next week that this was our dream, that if it could work in one city, maybe it could go to other cities. Plus, we've been streaming our events, and so people pick it up on Facebook or Julio or different places, and then they come to training. Mm -hmm. So the real thing is if anyone wants to use this in their own life or take it anywhere, come to the training program, as you know, because we have people who just love Mm -hmm. from all over. They've seen it on some of our talks. They see it on, on Facebook, and so they come for training. And what, what we do is we invite people to come to, I think there are two or three steps. One is to experience a workshop in which they just learn what it is and, and, uh, and apply it to themselves. And then we ask them if they would be, presumably they show up wanting to be workshop leaders. Um, and by that, we mean they will take what they learn and learn how, and then come into the training program and become a leader so they can share it with people in what we call their ecosystem. Like they may want to do it in a school or they may want to do it in in their company. They may want to do it in their congregation. So we train you and you take it to your ecosystem. 
and we I think we've gotten about uh, over 300 people have been through the training program and are at various levels of activity. Out, I think 26 states and about 11 countries uh, with that number of people. But this is a huge boost now if the response of the League of Cities to the mayor's blog is what we can imagine it would be, then we will we'll have more work than we can get done because the cities will want us to help them launch it in their cities. And so that'll be, that'll be fun. There'll be a lot of work, but we, I, every, every day when I get a little bit tired, it's like, well, who gets to do this? <laughs> and yeah. What else would we want to do? And why am I complaining? People, people really want, want something that, we've invented and that um, changes their relationships and that changes their lives. And it's all the way. The interesting thing is once you change your relationship so that you're safe in it, or you change a classroom where the kids feel safe, it changes your body all the way down through your neurochemistry, uh, your immune system, and, and obviously your emotions are better. And then you don't react to other people, so there's less violence, less um, domestic abuse, less yelling, less negative stuff. And something wonderful happens when you feel safe in a relationship. And mm-hmm. it sort of, we sort of say, you know, that's the way we think probably nature set it up, and we're just trying to actualize and help nature finish being itself. With the f- safe conversation frameworks, can it work if only one person is willing to do the work? And how do you advise people to do that? Yes. It's typical that one might want to dive in and do it and uh, their partner won't. And the one thing you don't do is criticize the partner if they don't want to do it. People are scared. They're scared of failure. They're scared of intimacy. And the thing to do is to... Did you say people are scared of intimacy? (laughs) Do people know that? I I, I just think you you say that so kindly and it's so true. I think you should underline that. that One of the hard things about this is that it creates intimacy. And that scares you. So then you'll you'll do something. But then if you get it, what if it goes away? Uh, You're really vulnerable if you're close. Sorry to interrupt you, but uh, that's such an important point. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So the thing to do is to be it. And uh, the one thing not to do is criticize your partner. But if you model, if you just begin to um, ask if it's okay when your partner talks, is it okay if I mirror you back? Because I want to make sure I've got right what you're saying before I respond. Uh, Sometimes I respond and it's not exactly what you said. So I want to make sure I get it right. And use the dialogue with them and then thank them for taking time to be careful with you and open and clear. And then the idea of what if every day we give each other three appreciations at the end of the day? Well, if they don't want to do that, that's fine. But mainly, may, so here's, here's for the hard case where your partner's just not getting into it. If your birthday uh, or an end of the year holiday or Valentine's Day comes up, you can ask that you go to a workshop together. And the way to phrase that is, honey, I love our relationship. I know we've got some problems, but everybody has them. But, you know, we're both doing the best we can. I'd really like, for my birthday, I'd love it if in the months ahead we could go to a workshop where I could learn to 
do a better job on my part of our relationship. I really want to learn how to be there for you. I know you don't sometimes feel like I care that much and I care, but I just don't know how to express it. So could we go to a workshop? And then once you get to a workshop, someone else invites the both of you to engage together and you're not being a nag and you're not trying to get them. Mm. How does that sound? That's wonderful because <laughs> you guys are wonderful. <laughs> I think the main thing to underline is you must never say, let's go to a workshop so that you can change. You have to. <laughs> yeah, which is what you're thinking. <laughs> drag them yeah, there. Drag them there. <laughs> you, you, you have to. And Helen says, you have to be what you want your partner to be. And the only way that one person, and, one, and we've known hundreds of people who've made a difference, one person making a difference, but they only make a difference if they don't take a judgmental attitude toward their partner. Mm-hmm. But I want to grow, be a better partner for you. So will you come help me learn how to do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's the piece that, that makes a difference. Yeah. What you just said of being the change that you want to see in a relationship is the exact framework that I had to repeat to myself hundreds of times in mending my relationship with my parents. And so I think it's just so powerful to hear you guys say that again and reiterate that. Helen, you just released a book on feminism. Do you want to touch a little bit on that, on your book and what that's all about? I accidentally discovered some history that had been left out of the feminist history. People think the origin of American feminism was Seneca Falls in 1848. But 13 years before, there was a group of women who wanted to work to end slavery in the country. And they were abolitionists at a time when women weren't supposed to speak in public. So they had a bind. But they stepped into their power. They found their voice. And they worked along with men, even though the men said you should be at home in the kitchen. (laughs) But they kept wanting to speak out to help end slavery in this country. And it's sort of like, quote, relationships for, and then they they eventually succeeded. And Frederick Douglass at the end of, in his autobiography, gave them a lot of credit for what they did to achieve the Emancipation Proclamation. But basically, there's slavery in a relationship. I mean, this is sort of akin to our human relationships too, that one of us feels in prison or can't use our voice. And and what I love about the abolition feminists is they learned to unleash their voice. It's not just white males that talk. We need to listen to everyone's talk. And in your own relationship or your family, everyone has a voice. So for me, the takeaway of the work on this book, on the Spirit Moves Them book, is really um, these women all wanted to work relationally, signing petitions and practicing empathy for their sisters in the South. They were worked very relationally. And uh, relationship is really everything. Thank you for sharing and doing the work that you do and for being one of the women that went before. I know that really has empowered and inspired me to see women like you fight way earlier and when it was way harder. So thank you. My next question is, what is the best relationship advice you have ever received or could give? Anytime you're judging your partner, shift from judgment to curiosity. 
about why they are the way they are. Always shift from judgment to curiosity. And then the, along with that is learn to ask for what you want in the relationship instead of blaming your partner for what they're not doing. And when you learn to ask for what you want, you need to use sender responsibility, which means you just ask for a little bit at a time and ask succinctly with a kind tone of voice where they'll be interested in giving you what you want. Mm. I think the, the advice I would give that's been the most challenging for me to receive as well is our own um, advice about mm-hmm. zero negativity. And that, that that is so counterintuitive to the brain because the brain we learn from brain scientists has a proclivity to be judgmental or to be suspicious because that's the way it survived for millions of years. You couldn't assume that if somebody approached you that it was safe. So you had to had to basically check and see if this was an enemy or a friend. And the first thing it asks, is this an enemy? It doesn't ask, is this a friend? Uh, because somehow that got built into the psychoneural system. So when you ask somebody to go zero negative, you're really asking them to go against that evolutionary impulse so that when somebody triggers them, somebody is doing something that triggers them, they go to curiosity rather than judgment, which is the opposite of what you do in the evolutionary sense. You don't go to curiosity. You, first of all, have to go to judgment and say, is this safe or dangerous? But if you're in a relationship, that actually turns things into negative energy. So you have to go to curiosity, which is, so can you tell me what is happening when you do that? Or I was experiencing this going on with you, and I'm imagining there must be something happening inside. You share that with me. And then I have to listen to it and not criticize what she says. So I think zero negativity is the, we, we've made it the centerpiece of the system because it just makes sense. You can't love and be negative. The two things just don't fit. And so if you're going to love, you have to drop. So that we've said zero negativity is actually looking at your partner through the eyes of love. Mm. Taking away all of your discomfort with them and saying, you are a person I love and I love you and I do not ask you to be what you're not. Because negativity says be something else. Be somebody else. And that negates them. Yeah. It's just that simple. That's phenomenal. I affirm you in your, you know, like Helen is, is emotional and intense. And so instead of saying, hey, why don't you kind of calm down? I have to affirm her that she's doing that because that's the way she lives. And so I have to affirm that, accept that and say, is there anything I can do to help you? And what I've noticed is that calms her down. I have a quick appreciation to give, if that's okay. Sure. Thank you. You're using the process. Is this be a good time? I just wanted to take a minute and say that the both of you have done incredible work for 
thousands of mental health professionals and beyond and all the patients that they've seen. And your books have impacted millions of people. And I'm just so excited to see the work that you guys are about to do through Safe Conversations. And I just have a deep gratitude for both of you. And it's evident that you're not after this to make a lot of money. Um, You're after this to really make an impact. And I, I can't say that's necessarily true of some of the other leaders in this space. And I just really value the both of you for hanging in there, even through the hard and tough times and for being so vulnerable. Oh, thank you so much. That leads me to my last question of what does it mean to love or love intently to you? Well, to me, to love is to unconditionally value your partner as they are. That love is somehow an unconditional status that your partner has. And it's sort of like the zero negativity piece is that that love is is uh, seeing you as you are and accepting you without judgment and being committed to your deepest welfare. The thing that came to my mind is that at the wedding altar, people say, oh, you and I are one, but they're both secretly hoping that they're the one and not the other one. <laughs> Their partner just wants to love them and that they're getting married to get the love they want. When actually, in my view, real love is agape love, where you love someone else equal, if not greater, mm. than yourself. And their welfare is equal, if not greater, to your very own welfare. You learn to look at your partner that way, that you're there to serve them. Thank you so much for listening this week. This was such a special interview for me as these two would go into the history books as world changers. The book, Getting the Love You Want, A Guide for Couples is one you definitely want to read and check out and one that you will not regret reading. And this month, we also partnered with Live A Great Story for our Love A Great Story campaign. The best stories are love stories and do we have some incredible great ones in store for you. You can find us at Instagram at story or at love.intently, or get on our email list so you don't miss a beat. We also made exclusive February Valentine's Day love tips empowering you to simply love intently, and you can get those by simply taking our love personality quiz that you can find on both loveintently.com or liveagreatstory.com. And singles, we did not forget about you. We partnered with our dear friend, Krista Beck, a relationship expert and dating coach for love tips exclusively for singles. You can find out all that information at loveintently.com or liveagreatstory.com. Thank you so much again. I can't wait to share this month's content and episodes and everything we have in store. Just really grateful for all of you in our tribe. Until next time with love and intention.